We'll begin there in Psalm um, 59 in just a moment. And uh, Phil, would you want to lead us in opening prayer? God, our Father, thankful for the life you've created us today, the help that we have, the blessings that you have showered upon us. Help us, Father, to see how richly we are blessed. Uh, help us, Father, that we'll see even more uh, how, how much we are blessed through Jesus, your Son, and the love that you show to us through him. Thank you, Father, for allowing them to come and live and die upon the cross in, in our place and to redeem us satisfy uh, to satisfy the debt that we could not pay. Father, help us as we open up the Psalms and see uh, those that have written about their love for you and their love for, for us. Help us to see how uh, clearly you love us and want us to dedicate our lives to you. Thank you for the study tonight and please uh, Tommy encourage us all in this study. Amen. Amen. Okay. Psalm 59. For the choir director set to Al Tashheth, a mitcom of David, when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. Verse 1. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Set me securely on high away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity, and save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me, not for my transgressions, nor for my sin, O Lord. For no guilt of mine, they run and set themselves against me. Arouse yourself to help me, and see, you, O Lord of hosts, you, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity, Silah. They return at evening, they howl like a dog, they go around the city. Behold, they belch forth with their mouths, swords are in their lips. For they say, who hears? But you, O Lord, laugh at them, you scoff at all the nations." Because of his strength, I will watch for you. For God is my stronghold. My God, in his, my God in his loving kindness will meet me. God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. Do not slay them or my people will forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down. O Lord, our shield. On account of of the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be caught in their pride and on account of curses and lies which they utter. Destroy them in wrath, destroy them that they may be no more. That men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth, Salah. They return at evening, they howl like a dog, they go around the city, they wander about for food, they growl if they are not satisfied. But as for me, I shall sing of your strength, yes, I shall, sing, shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning, for you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh my... O oh my strength, I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. 
What were things that stood out for you in Psalm 59? Things he calls God, his stronghold. Okay. Okay, very good. What he says about God is always fundamental. And we'll write some of this on the board in just a moment. Um, What else? I'm afraid for some of you can't hear. (laughs) Oh, David? Well, he starts off, you know, they pursue, you know, calling out for help. Okay. And then... Okay. In a couple of statements y'all made, and we haven't said much in summary, but a couple of statements that Boyd and David made touched on, I guess, three of the four areas that I thought of in kind of summing up the song. I didn't try to give just a strict outline of it, but I thought some keys of Psalm 59 so keys of Psalm 59 are one, his description. Of his enemy. His description of his enemy. Two. The sense of urgency. That his prayers be answered. So as he describes his enemies, there's a sense of urgency. Then his description of God. Why does he turn to God? Well, the things he says in description about God are the reasons that he turns to God. The one area that I really don't know that you all touched upon, and this is not as prominent perhaps as these, but there there are enough of these and they're important enough that I felt like I should include this. And it's what he says about himself. Let me illustrate from that point because uh, we may sum this up quickly. One of the things he says about himself, he emphasizes in 59 verses 3 and 4 that he is an innocent sufferer. He says that fierce men launch an attack against me, not for my transgressions, not for my sin, O Lord. It's not because of what I've done. In verse 4, for no guilt of mine, they run and set themselves against me. He is innocent. He is innocent and yet that doesn't stop his enemies from being ferocious and and making efforts to destroy him. Also, something he says about himself is in verses 16 and 17. What is interesting is he has just described the wicked 
in verses 14 and 15. He describes the wicked in verses 14 and 15, but he contrasts that with himself in his situation. In verse 16, he says, But as for me, um, I will sing... I will sing of your strength. I will sing in the morning of your loving kindness. Um, but he, he uses the separate personal pronoun for I. We have seen before that when Hebrew uses a separate personal pronoun, it is for emphasis. In contrast to how the wicked live, in contrast to them being like dogs who wander about for food and growl if they aren't satisfied, in, con in contrast to that, I, I will sing praise. I will praise God. They may growl about how they don't have enough. I will praise Him. And so what he says about himself is also, also an important factor in the psalm. What I would encourage you to do is, if you haven't made a list like this already, to, as we go through the psalm, add verses, and it may be sometimes the same verse does double duty, but add verses to this when it says his description of his enemies or the sense of urgency or his description of God. We may, we'll come back to that at the end, add some verses to it, Lord willing. But did you see a recurring phrase or recurring ideas that were important in Psalm 59? Okay. His constant calls for deliverance. Deliver me in verse 1, verse 2. Save me, verse 2. But again, this is all the sense of urgency that his prayers be answered. At evening and in the morning. Okay. They return at evening. He describes his enemies returning at evening, howling like a dog and going around the city. In verse 6 and verse 14. You see the same kind of description of the enemy is given. So it emphasizes there and it does emphasize evening as John stated. Uh, morning is emphasized in verse 17. But the same kind of description is given of the enemies. The same kind of description is given of God in verse 9, but of his strength I shall watch, for God is my stronghold. In verse 16, you find the same thing. God is my stronghold. So, he gives some of the same descriptions of his enemies that he gives, and he, just like he gives some of the same descriptions of God. But, let's begin looking at the psalm from verse 1. I would say verse 1 begins more with the sense of urgency that his prayers be answered and his description of his enemies. This is what is going to be emphasized strongly at the beginning. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Set me securely on high away from those who rise up against me. Now, set me 
set me, my, my translation has set me securely, but securely is in italics. When it's in italics, it indicates what? Not in the original. So set me, set me, literally says set me on high. Set me on high. Now this is a verb. Set me on high. But this particular verb is the same root, the same, most Hebrew words have three letters. And the root word is used to form nouns and verbs. The verb which is used here in verse 1 is from the same root word used in verse 9 and verse 17 speaking of God as a stronghold. Because God is my stronghold. Because God is David's stronghold. God can lift him up to a high place where he will be protected from the foe. But again, this connection of words helps us to understand who God is and what God does in light of who he is. Deliver me from my enemies, O oh my God. Set me on high, away from those who rise up against me. We see his enemies described as simply enemies in verse 1. They are also described as those who rise against me. In verse 2, deliver me from those who do iniquity. Another description of the wicked. Those who do iniquity. And save me from men of bloodshed. Now we see the stakes are being raised even higher. They are willing to take life in order to accomplish their purposes. Deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me from men of bloodshed. But it's begging God, rescue me. And you see here in these verses too, this sense of urgency that God answer his prayer in light of the strong enemies that he faces. In verse 3, they set an ambush for my life. Set an ambush. The, the word set an ambush can be translated lie in wait. And it's used quite frequently. One passage that I think is good to illustrate the meaning of this is Joshua 8. I found this term was used six times in Joshua 8. Now you remember Joshua 8. Israel is fighting against the city of Ai. And they have some men going out at front and they are fighting the city but they have others that are lying in wait that the enemy doesn't know are there. And when these men who are fighting the city openly, when they feign defeat, 
when they run away and draw the defenders of the city away, those who lie in wait are going to arise and enter the city and destroy it. And that's what happens in Joshua chapter 8. And they were lying in wait. And David is experiencing that same thing. They're lying in wait. They're set in an ambush for his life. And they are fierce men who launch an attack against me. They are fierce men. This is the same root word used when Samson says... His riddle in Judges 14 verse 14 and in Judges 14 verse 18 when the answer ends up being what is stronger than a lion. This word can be translated strong. It can be translated mighty. It can be translated raging when it refers to waters. His enemies are seeking his destruction and his enemies are powerful people. These are formidable foes. They are fierce men who launch an attack against me. But he says in verse 3, Not for my transgressions, nor for my sin, O Lord, for no guilt of mine, they run and set themselves against me. It's not what I've done wrong. He is innocent. And yet he has fierce men opposing him. Now we've already seen a sense of urgency. It permeates this psalm. But I think it kind of reaches new heights in verses 4 and 5. In verse 4... He says, arouse yourself to me and see. And in verse 5, awake to punish all the nations. When he calls upon God, arouse yourself, awake, rise to my defense. Those are very dramatic terms. It's as if, and we'll see this in Psalm 78, the, the psalmist uses this illustration that, that God awoke as if a soldier overcome by wine. That's an illustration used in the text. And obviously, we know God neither slumbers nor sleeps. But, but, but the idea is from the psalmist's perspective, as these fierce men are hounding him and are seeking his life and are lying in wait for his soul, it, it seems like God is oblivious to it. And he's begging God, arouse yourself, awake. Arouse yourself, awake. Wake up and hear me. Now what does he say about God? In verse 5, you, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, away to punish the nation. Lord God of hosts. The word host is used in a couple of ways in the Bible. Sometimes it is used of the moon and the stars and the heavenly bodies. After Israel goes into Babylonian captivity, 
the number of times the Bible speaks of the Lord as the Lord of hosts multiplies. Goes up a lot. The reason for that, I believe, is because the Babylonians put a lot of emphasis on studying the moon and the stars. They put a lot of emphasis on astronomy. They viewed those deities as gods. They viewed those heavenly bodies as gods, as deities that controlled their destiny. But God was emphasizing to Israel that he is the Lord God who controls all those things. So sometimes the hosts are used to talk about the heavenly bodies. Sometimes host is used to talk of armies. And to speak of the Lord as the Lord God of hosts means he is the God of the armies of Israel. As Elisha said to the servant of God who saw the horses and chariots all around in 2 Kings 6, he said, those who are for us are more than those who are with them. And he prayed, O Lord, open his eyes. And the Lord opened his eyes and he sees horses and chariots of fire all around in 2 Kings chapter 6. He is God of the armies of heaven. But either way, this indicates his power, doesn't it? You, O Lord God of hosts, God of Israel, a way to punish the nations. Now, I want you to notice that most of Psalm 59 seems very personal about enemies seeking my life and hounding me and launching attack against me. But there are some places, verse 5, verse 8, um, in verse um, 13, for example, that speak of the nations as a whole, or the ends of the earth. Some have suggested this possibility. That just as inspired writers wrote down this, and, and I think we should take the, the headings of the psalm seriously, but maybe there were notes given by inspired writers later adding a couple of words to this. And some have suggested that some of the national concerns may have been added later in Israel's history after they had suffered so much at the hands of the nations. That's just, that's just a possibility. It may be that it just incorporates personal problems with national problems. But, but he says about these enemies in verse 5, Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. Do not be gracious. Now this is so contrary to the way Psalm 56 and Psalm 57 open. Psalm 56, open, be gracious to me, O God, for man is trampled upon me. In Psalm 57, be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. He called for God to be gracious to him. But now he says about these who give themselves to sin and iniquity, do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. Don't show them mercy. Salah. They return at evening. 
They howl like a dog. They go around the city. Generally, in the ancient Near East, dogs were considered wild animals and often ran in packs and were dangerous. And this seems to be the idea here. It is evening tide when it's evening and they, uh, under the cover of darkness, do great damage. And his enemies are described as this way. And in verse 7, they belch forth with their mouth. For the word translated belch forth, it is translated pour forth. In Psalm 19, verse 2, the heavens declare the glory of God. The expanse is showing His handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech. And just as the heavens constantly pour forth testimony to God's glory, these wicked people with their mouths constantly pour forth trouble. Swords are in their mouths. And they say, who hears? Who hears? When you see that kind of idea in the Bible, especially the Psalms, and you see wicked people, and by the way, we could add to our description of the wicked here, at least verses 6 and 7, but when we see wicked people say, who hears, what's the significance of it? Very like indignant. They they think they can get away with it without being judged or punished. They're not accountable to anybody. Who's going to stop us? Now that's the idea. Who hears? But in verse eight, you, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at the nations. I stated earlier with verse 16 and the pronoun for I that when a personal pronoun appears it is for strong emphasis of language. In 59 verse 5 and verse 8 the word you used in the first of those verses has a separate personal pronoun. In verse 5, you is as if saying, you, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel. And here in verse 8, but you, and I'm not maybe emphasizing you strongly enough, but you're, I hope you're getting the idea. You, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at the nation. Yes. These nations are fierce people, strong people, raging people. But they're no threat to God. Are they really a threat to God? God laughs at them. God scoffs at them. In Psalm 2 verse 4, both of these verbs are used. <laughs> After describing man and his puny rebellion against God, the Bible says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Both of these verbs, same words used here. 
And by the way, this word scoff or mock, it was used of how Assyria treated Israel in 2 Kings 19.21. 2 Kings 19.21. They scoffed at Israel. God scoffs at them for thinking that they can defy Him. Now, this isn't the only picture of God in the Bible. When Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, He wept over the city. In Luke 19. We serve a God who weeps at man's disobedience. But He is a God who scoffs. If any of us think we can raise our fist in defiance against Him, asking who hears, and get away with it infinitely. We can't. And in verse 9, because of his strength, I will watch for you. For God is my stronghold. I will watch for you. Now, that word I think is very significant. Watch. Did you notice that word was used in the head? In the heading, it's the same Hebrew word, both cases here. But Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. Saul has men watching for David. In the heading, They are watching for David. In verse 9, these men are watching for God. Because of his strength, I will watch for you. For God is my stronghold. Where is our stronghold? Where is our refuge? Who is our shield? And he is confident that God, in verse 10, will not let his enemy look triumphantly on him. But God will let me look triumphantly upon him. And he says, my God, in his loving kindness, will meet me. Now the word loving kindness. The first time it's used in this psalm is in verse 10. But it will also be used in verse 16 and verse 17. So we see what the psalm speaks about God. A very key element of that is in verses 9 and 10. God is my stronghold. And a characteristic of God which is emphasized is his loving kindness. God's loving kindness, God's grace, God's mercy, God's pity, God's long-suffering, 
all these words kind of rolled up into one in that Hebrew word that's used here. May God in his love, my God in his loving kindness will meet me. God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. God will give him victory. Okay. Now, you'll have hardly said anything since the introduction. Any questions? Any ideas right here? David? Uh, verse 9. Uh, because of his strength, I will watch for thee. I've got a footnote for his strength. It says, many manuscripts and some ancient versions read my strength. And I noticed the ESV uses my strength. I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. That does seem a little different. Yes. The ESV reads really differently from New American Standard in verse 9. Read the whole thing in the ESV then. It says, uh, I will keep watch for you, my strength, because God is my stronghold. Okay. I I, um, looked at that this afternoon, David. I had no strong conclusions as to which we should follow I think though the way the ESV words it you end up pretty much in the same place whether God is the source of my strength or how did it work right, it to, you, boy boy hey yes. boy are you reading from the ESV I that, that was the ESV that I read that's the whole I got that as the Holman boy but it's the ESV too. is that what yours reads Ours reads differently. It says, Oh my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O oh God, are my force. You may have a renegade version of the ESV. You know, you may have. Yeah, yeah. I know, I use that sometimes too. David, I, I think it ends out. I think that the way that, okay, the Holman Christian that he read ends out pretty much in the same place. I want to tell you my impression was looking over that this afternoon. Oh, how can we trust this Bible? There's so many differences in manuscripts, some would say. And as I was looking over this and reading arguments about my strength versus his strength, because a couple of manuscripts have my strength. And most of the Hebrew manuscripts have his strength. But some ancient translations have my strength. What you see is the care with which the text was presented. And issues like this are considered, considering the whole focus of Scripture, that's considered pretty major exegetical issue whether a difference between his strength or my strength. But again, I quoted this the other day, as Edgar Shrigley says, I could preach it either way. And I think I could preach it either way and end up at the same point. You know, but, but, but to me, David, when I was looking at this, I just stand in awe of how carefully this text has preserved and even fine points like that that are debated and argued by those that have really investigated what the original text should be only strengthen my faith in the text. So that's the conclusion I would want to lead us to. You may have more thoughts about that. The ESP capitalizes 
So like that's a description of God. In their opinion. My strength, I will watch for you. God was his yeah. strength. Yeah. And so you see there it ends out so the same kind of way. Yeah. But that is a good that is a good point. And 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 I'm, I appreciate your comment from the standpoint it makes me keep looking at the tedious things in the text because you don't know when somebody might bring them up. So uh, what else? I probably wouldn't ask that of anyone other than <laughs> Well There'd be others who could answer it, and others who could answer it, but some better, but, but that was the uh, what I thought about it. That, John? Uh, in verse 7, instead of belt, some of the other versions use the word spew. Yeah. Spew, pours forth is the idea. Uh, it's just the idea it's constantly coming from their mouth. Um, and that's the idea. Okay. Yes. Um, okay. Let me look at verse 10. Um, now, this verse 10 in English, my God. Okay. What I would say to you. I do think, I do not know why they translate it. Most versions translate that help in verse 4. Because that word would better be translated. Um, I, it could be translated, rouse yourself to my call. It could be to my cry. Um, to meet me. Is, is, that's, but it is not, I would say though, it's not the same Hebrew word used in verse 10. Okay? That's the thing I would, I, I, I can understand that translation meet in verse 4. And I think you could make a case for it being a better translation. But it's not the same Hebrew word in verse 10. So, that would be Okay. So it, it says that's the literal translation of the word, and so they have taken some liberties. In, in in all words, we understand to some degree contextually, and uh, but why help would be better than meat there? I'm not exactly sure why they would have thought that. Now, there's a really interesting statement here in verse 11. Verses 11 through 13 deal with an imprecatory section of the psalm, praying judgment on these foes. And we saw that in Psalm 58 last week. But Psalm 59 says, do not slay them. Because forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. No. Do not slay them or my people will forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield.
Now, do you have a footnote with our shield, David? Some versions have my shield? No. Again, okay. You should have. Okay. Uh, but, <laughs> but anyway, uh, but that is true. That is true. I'm, I'm not making that up. But, but, now, but, but, but he says, scatter them. Don't slay them. Scatter them. The word for scatter is the same root word used when Cain complains, I will be a, a stranger and a vagrant in the earth. That's the idea. The idea, God, don't slay them. Let them wander aimlessly. But that's a strange request. Don't slay them. Because he's afraid the people will forget. Sometimes judgment happens so fast and we forget it. September 11th, 2001, World Trade Center is torn down. I, I turn on the television and there are all kinds of churches meeting for prayer that are scrolling at the bottom of the screen. I've never seen that in my life. These churches are meeting for special prayers that night. Church attendance soared that week, the next week. And not long we forgot. And we went on with life as usual. Lord, don't slay them or my people will forget. Scatter them by your power. Let them wander aimlessly and let their lives, let their lives be a continual reminder of your judgment, basically, and your retribution. That's the idea. It's not the exact words. And in verse 12, on account of the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them be called in their pride and on account of curses and lies which they utter. So because of, and notice how the sins of these Psalms deal so frequently with the mouth, the mouth, the lips. The curses and lies they utter, they speak. The point that we see stressed over and over here. Bring judgment upon them because of the things they've said. And then he says in verse 13, destroy them in wrath. Destroy it them that they may be no more. That they may know that God rules in Jacob to the end of the earth. Now, there's a strong connection between 59 and 13 in what we saw last week in 58, 10, and 11. In 59, 13, the text is, Destroy them that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Last week, the Bible says, People will say there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is God who judges the earth. One of the reasons for these prayers, calling down curses upon foes, is God, is that these servants of God wanted people to see that God is God, that God judges wrong, and wanted people to wake up to the reality of the disaster of sin. Now, one of our passages, one of our Psalms, in the daily reading today 
Psalm 83.16. I want you to notice this. And Christy pointed this out in our daily reading after we finished. Psalm 83.16. Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name, O Lord. Even sometimes these imprecatory prayers were prayed that the sinners themselves might wake up to their need of God. It wasn't too long ago. It wasn't, I was about to say right here in this building, it wasn't right here in this building. It was in the last building we were in. That someone was visiting one day And I knew their daughter had them in school. I asked how she's doing. And um, he says, not well. He says, uh, she is not faithful to the Lord now. And, and uh, he made this statement. He said, I prayed to the Lord that the world will eat her alive so that she may turn back to God. I understand that. And sometimes it takes something like that to wake someone up. May God judge evil for the good of those who are doing evil and for the good of all who observe it that they may know that God rules in Jacob to the end of the earth. Back in Psalm 59, Psalm 59, verse 14. Verse 14, basically the same as verse 6. Maybe exactly the same. They return at evening. They howl like a dog. They go around the city. They wander around for food and growl if they are not satisfied. Now, while verse 6 and verse 14 are almost identical, there is a difference between verse 7 and verse 15. And the word, and there is a question, that word growl, as it's translated in the New American Standard, and some of your versions may not have that. But the word growl, uh, if that is indeed the proper translation, the proper root word, it may come from the same root that's used to describe Israel murmuring in the wilderness. Israel murmured, Israel complained, Israel was not satisfied. And so the, the picture is that these, these, these dogs, these ravenous dogs are hungry beasts, unsatisfied and constantly on the move in search of food. But, but they're not satisfied. They're, they're simply wandering around looking for more and not receiving it. But in contrast to this desire of the wicked that goes unsatisfied in verse 16 but as for me I will sing of your strength 
I will joyfully sing of your loving kindness and in the morning for you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. Well, this is really a powerful description of God in verses 16 and 17 here. And we, we talked about the contrast. This is how the wicked live in verses 14 and 15. This is how I live. I, I shall sing of your strength. The morning, we've seen the evening mention in verse 6 and verse 14. The morning mention in verse 16. Morning was often pictured as the time of deliverance in the Psalms. For example, in Psalm 46, Psalm 46 in verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. That was Psalm 46 verse 5. And so now as for me, I will sing of your strength. I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning. You have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of distress. Oh, my strength. I'll sing praises to you. For God is my stronghold. The God who shows me loving kindness. The word loving kindness is a key characteristic of God in the psalm. And importantly, perhaps, it is the last word of the psalm. It's the last word. God is my stronghold. The God who shows me loving kindness. The same God who slays the wicked but not all at once. Who scatters them by his power. Who who catches them in their pride and brings down curses upon them. Who destroys them in wrath. That same God is a God of loving kindness. Are we going to choose to be his servants? experience his loving kindness or to rebel against him to act as if we're not accountable to say who hears and to experience his wrath I know which I choose what do you see what thoughts what, what, what did I leave unaddressed Boy, you look like you're about to say something. David, David is not looking for praise himself. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the things that happen to him, that he finds strength in, uh, and the thing, even the things he does, he wants God to get the glory for it all. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. He wants God to be honored. He wants all the ends of the earth to know that God rules in Jacob. I realize there's some other verses I could add to that description of the enemies uh, when you're saying that. But yes, they use their mouth for destructive purposes. God uses it for, uh, the servant of God uses it to praise God. Um, So very good. 
very good thought, very good contrast. Anything else? Psalm 59. What, what do you think my next words are going to be? Psalm 59 and... Ah! You know, after 59 weeks, you are catching on. <laughs> what thoughts do y'all have? David claims innocence. Okay. He's treated for something that uh, he does not feel guilty of. <clears throat> David's innocence. And I told you all in preaching in prisons, what you always hear is, I'm not guilty of what, what they put me in here for. Oh, I've done enough to be in here, but I'm not guilty. You know, all of us, when we suffer, it's kind of like that. We're not guilty, maybe, of what we're being accused of. We've done right in the matter that others are accusing us of wrong, but we're guilty of other things. In Jesus' case, he did no sin, nor was any guy found in his mouth. I think it's interesting when you're going through the gospel accounts and Pilate shouts to the crowd, Do you want me to release for you, Jesus, of Barabbas? And the crowds are shouting, Barabbas, Barabbas, what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they shall let him be crucified. And Pilate says, why, what evil has he done? And they just continue to shout, let him be crucified. They don't give a good answer to that question. And they can't. Because he is utterly innocent. If we can ever claim innocence in suffering, and we can, how much more can he claim innocence? What else? David? Exactly. The enemies of David foreshadow the enemies of Jesus. They're similar to, they have the same kind of hatred, the same kind of aggression, the same kind of fierceness. And while God grieves over those events, the Lord laughs and scoffs that these foolish men 
are going to stop his plan. It is even interesting to me in regard to what David said. That the enemies are compared a couple of times to dogs. And Paul in Philippians talks about those who were trying to tell the Gentile brethren to be circumcised. They are dogs. They are evil workers. In Philippians 3 and verse 2. In Revelation 22, when it gives a description of the holy city, it said outside are dogs. So that description of the enemy as dogs here may be alluded to or may be part of the background of those kinds of statements. But yes, Jesus and his disciples faced this kind of opposition. What else? John? I still like the contrast between light and darkness that's brought okay. in here. And you think when Jesus was hanging on the cross, you know, there in the darkness in the middle of the day, and yet his glory shone forth in the morning okay. of his resurrection. You know, John says of him in John 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, okay. and the light shines in the darkness. Okay, very good. In the evening. And morning. And light and darkness. Contrast in the Old Testament and in the New. Both there. And, and again, the word loving kindness. Um, the word that was most frequently used in the Greek translation, the word that was most frequently used to translate this Hebrew term for loving kindness is a Greek term that means mercy. And as Ephesians 2, verse 4, in context demonstrates, the ultimate display of God's mercy is the cross of Christ. The ultimate display of His mercy. The ultimate display of His loving kindness. Christy? Okay, David, it appears, is delivered from his enemies, and uh, Jesus, not, is that John 12, 27? Mary, you had a thought, that is a very good thought, very good thought. Mary, you had a thought as well. Just a picture at the end where um, David says God has been his defense and his refuge, and thinking of Jesus in the garden going to to fortify himself because he knew he would need that strength. Yes. Jesus is both in this psalm, and I know we've stated this before, but the awe of this is kind of just 
you could ponder this forever. Just as God is his stronghold, David's stronghold, I think what Mary says is right. Jesus turns to the Father in the garden as his stronghold. He couldn't turn to the apostles, one of whom was betrayed. All of whom were sleeping, including those closest to him, Peter, James, and John. He turns to God as his stronghold. Jesus is both sees God as his stronghold. And then in verse 1, when it says, Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Set me securely on high from those who rise against me. I think it was that verse. That in the Greek translation has the word, it's either that or it's one or two, has the word ransom me. A word that is only used three times in the New Testament. It is used, ransom me, in Luke 24, 21, Titus 2 and 14, and um, 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19. And all of them talk about the ransom or the redemption in Jesus. Jesus is both the psalmist, the David of the psalm who makes God his stronghold, and he is the God who saves. At the same time, he is both of these. And and that is a truth we can never get our arms around. I'm convinced of that. To think about the one who spoke our worlds into existence, came to this earth and lived as a man and was rejected and murdered and rose again. And when, when he calls upon God to arouse yourself and, and heal me and wait and, and, and deliver me, um, in a sense, these are fulfilled in the resurrection. But I appreciate your thought, your thinking with us. Um, and as Christy afterwards, if you get a picture of that before, if I, I don't know if I thought of all those things. But I appreciate your ideas. What else? Anything? Thank you for, for being here and studying that together. Isaiah, would you want to lead us in prayer?
and was put on the cross and died the death that we deserve to die. We're so thankful for that and for him. Help us to put our trust and our faith fully in him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. 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 John, you got our song for us? Or? Well, there was a song I'm leaving this microphone on till you lead us in this song. Okay, so verses 1 through 11 are put to the tune of I Sing, the Mighty Power of God. So uh, we'll sing those four verses and then we'll flip over and do the remainder. Oh 
in all his loving kindness great my God will meet with me God will permit me on my foes to look triumphantly but lest my people should forget do not the wicked slay but bring them down O Lord our shield and scatter them away that was well written Okay, uh, verses 12 through 17 to Amazing Grace. Do so because of sin within their mouths and words, their lips let fly. Let in their own pride because they curse and lie destroy them in thy wrath destroy that they may be no more make no Like that. 